Hey there, this is Brian Zond, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I'm glad that you're interested in the sermons that I preach here at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. And if you ever feel inclined to help us by supporting us financially, you can do that at our website, wolc.com. Thank you. At 6 a.m. on Good Friday, Jesus was taken to the Roman governor. In a late night trial, the ruling religious council of Jerusalem had condemned Jesus for blasphemy. They said his claim to be the Messiah, the Son of God, the Son of Man who will rule the nations is blasphemy. At 6 a.m., they took Jesus to the Roman governor because the Sanhedrin lacked the authority to put anyone to death. That was reserved for the governor, Pontius Pilate. Initially, Pontius Pilate was hesitant to condemn Jesus to death, realizing that it was out of jealousy that the chief priests were motivated to do what they were doing. When Pilate offered to release for them a prisoner, Pilate suggested that this one here, the one who claimed to be the king of the Jews, would be a possible. But this crowd was stirred up by the chief priests, the crowd that they had gathered, to ask instead for Barabbas, Barabbas was the leader of an insurrectionist movement in Jerusalem that had committed murder. And so the crowd said, no, don't give us Jesus, give us Barabbas. And when Pilate said, well, what should be done with Jesus of Nazareth? They said, crucify him. And they began to chant, crucify him. Finally, Pontius Pilate capitulated and condemned Jesus Christ to death. Before his crucifixion, he was taken into the Antonio Fortress and the Roman cohort of 160 soldiers were gathered and he was scourged. And during this, they mocked him, creating a crown of thorns and throwing a purple robe over his bloody shoulders. They began to bow down and mock obeisance and hail him as king of the Jews. Finally, he was given his cross and he began to carry that cross from the Antonio Fortress through the streets of Jerusalem and then out the gate. But he faltered. He fell under the weight of the cross and a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, whose sons would become well-known bishops in the church, was pressed into service to carry the cross for Christ. When they arrived at Golgotha, the place of the skull, it was 9 a.m. And then Jesus was crucified. People were coming and going. It's Passover time. Jesus was crucified at one of the main entry points into the city on the north. 
And the crowds would come by and they would jeer and they would mock, prompted by the chief priests who were standing by saying, oh, he saved others, but he can't save himself. You want us to believe in you? Then come down off of the cross and we'll believe in you. At noon, an eerie darkness fell over the land. And it was in that darkness that Jesus cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthini. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And finally, at 3 p.m., after six hours on the cross, Jesus gave a loud cry and breathed his last. This is Good Friday. T.S. Eliot said, the dripping blood our only drink, the bloody flesh our only food, in spite of which we like to think that we are sound, substantial flesh and blood. Again, in spite of that, we call this Friday good. We remember the death of Christ in Jerusalem on a Friday afternoon as Good Friday. We call it good because we know that Christ's death is central to our salvation and we associate this salvation with the forgiveness of sins. Amen. But how does a forgiveness based in the death of Christ on Good Friday actually work to achieve forgiveness? Does it restore honor to an omnipotent but offended monarch as Anselm suggested a thousand years ago? Is it the appeasement of an angry and offended God through the crucifixion of an innocent victim? How would that work? How is the unjust murder and torture of an innocent person equated as justification for the guilty? Is Good Friday the day when God took his wrath out on his son so he could forgive us as Calvin formed his atonement theory? No, those are misguided. Imposing the primitive notion of appeasement of an angry God upon the cross is what New Testament scholar N.T. Wright has described as the paganizing of atonement theology. It's a pagan understanding of sacrifice, not a Jewish understanding of sacrifice. The cross is not what God inflicts upon Christ in order to forgive. The cross is what God in Christ endures as he forgives. If we look for the Father on Good Friday, where do we find him? Do we find him working through Caiaphas in an unjust accusation? Do we find him working through Pontius Pilate in an unjust sentence of death? No, we find the Father where we always find the Father, expressed in the Son. Jesus is the word of the Father, made flesh. To see Jesus is to see the Father. Where do we find the Father on Good Friday? In the Son. The cross is not what God inflicts upon Christ in order to forgive. That's a paganized soteriology. The cross is what God in Christ endures as he forgives. 
The cross is not where Jesus saves us from God. The cross is what God in Christ is how God in Christ reveals God as Savior. At the cross, Christ is not saving us from God. He's revealing God as Savior. At the cross, the Son does not act as an agent of change upon the Father. Some have thought about the cross as, oh, this is, this is where Jesus changed the Father's disposition towards sinners. No. One of the most basic tenets of sound theology is that God is immutable. God doesn't change. God doesn't mutate. The Son never acts as an agent of change upon the Father because the Father is unchangeable. What the cross does is reveals the Father as the one who saves, as the one who loves. So when Jesus prays, Father, forgive them, it's because the Father is forgiving. Jesus only says what he hears the Father say. He only does what he sees the Father do. To see Jesus is to see the Father. When he prays, Father, forgive, it's because the Father is forgiving. But if the point is not appeasement in a pagan sense, how do we associate Good Friday with forgiveness? There are many ways to talk about it, but I think this is one very healthy way of talking about how we associate Good Friday with forgiveness. On Good Friday, the sin of the world coalesced into a hideous singularity that it might be forgiven in mass. It's Good Friday because the goodness of God is greater than the sinfulness of mankind. The cross, in fact, is the true center of history. Everything leads up to it and everything flows from it. The death of God upon a tree is not just some event within history. It is the event that defines and explains, reveals and redeems all of history. However we understand the origin of sin within the human story, its trajectory moves inevitably toward Good Friday. This is the moment when the spirit of love that flows between the Father and the Son erupted and engulfed and forgave the sin of the world. John the Baptist. In John's gospel early on, the forerunner identifies Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Not the sins of the world, but the sin of the world become a singular thing. On Good Friday, all the sins of the world amalgamated into the ultimate single sin of killing Jesus. Jesus is the logos of God, the love of God, the word of God, the truth of God, the beauty of God as a human being. And to kill that one is sin in all of its forms, amalgamated into a single hideous entity. Paul said that on the cross, Jesus was made to be sin. Think of it like this. 
When we see Jesus nailed to the cross, we see what sin truly looks like. You can look at that and say, well, you can look at Christ crucified and say many things. Of course, you can say it's the love of God. It's the salvation of the world, but it's also the sin of the world. Seven years ago, I was speaking at a theological conference in Switzerland and we had a day off and my good friend Bradley Jerzak and our wives, we went up, made a day trip up to Alsace, France to visit the uh, Eisenheim Cathedral and see the famous Eisenheim altarpiece that was painted by Matthias Grunewald exactly 500 years earlier. It was celebrating its 500th anniversary. And if you look at that, that's what the sin of the world looks like. The grotesquely distorted body anguish-ridden body of Jesus displaying the entry wounds of sin. There's John the Baptist saying, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's a very moving piece of art. I think it adequately, or at least it approaches being adequate in depicting how destructive, how awful, how ugly sin is. And so we see the innocent one nailed to a tree, buried in his bodies, in his body, the entrance wounds of sin. But once sin entered the body of the crucified God, there was no escape. On Good Friday, the sin of the world was drawn into the infinite gravity of God's grace. There's a collision of things. The sin of the world becoming a single thing, the murder of Jesus. And yet present is the infinite gravity of God's grace. At Golgotha, the sin of the world as a hideous singularity was drawn inescapably, inescapably into the greater singularity of God's love where sin itself was undone. Christ's self-sacrificial death upon the cross became a cosmic supernova, irradiating time and space with divine forgiveness. Think of sin becoming a singular thing, being drawn into the body of Jesus. We send our sins into his body, but then as it comes into the infinite density of God's grace, it explodes in this supernova of forgiveness that irradiates all of the cosmos with the love of God, the mercy of God, the pardon of God. This was when the sin of the world was taken away. When Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them, what was forgiven? Everything. Everything is forgiven when the Son upon the cross prays, Father, forgive them. Everything. Not only the betrayal committed by Judas, not only the murder committed by Barabbas, not only the false accusations leveled by Caiaphas, not only the unjust sentence handed down by Pontius Pilate, not only the Roman soldiers who crucified Jesus, not only the jeering crowd who mocked Jesus, but everything, 
Every sin, every transgression, every act of idolatry, every deed of injustice, every stone age murder, every space age iniquity, every notorious crime, every hidden sin, it was all forgiven. On Good Friday, the sins of the world became a single sin that it might be forgiven once and forever. This is what makes Good Friday good. The dripping blood blood our only drink, the bloody flesh our only food, in spite of which we like to think that we are sound, substantial flesh and blood. Again, in spite of that, we call this Friday good. We look upon Christ crucified. And what does Paul say about it? He says that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Paul does not say that God was outside of Christ being reconciled to the world. On Good Friday, the Father is not outside of Christ seeing what happens to Jesus and then at last being reconciled to the world. No. God was in Christ receiving our sin and reconciling the world back home to himself. The cross is the ultimate theodicy. The world has gone wrong and there's all kinds of moral evil, but ultimately God takes it upon himself in his own body and forgives it freely. On Good Friday, Jesus shed his blood because he was pierced by our iniquities. But when the grace of God is pierced, it bleeds pardon. The blood of Jesus is the blood that speaks a better word than the blood, than the blood of Abel. You know that story. The first siblings, the older murdered the younger. And the blood of Abel cried out against Cain from the ground. And a judgment came upon Cain and he becomes a, a wanderer in exile, moving ever further away from Eden and from the presence of God. But the writer of Hebrews tells us that we've come to the blood of sprinkling that speaks a better word. The blood of Jesus cries out, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Have mercy. Pardon them. And the Father says, yes, yes, yes. The shed blood of Abel drove Cain away from the presence of the Lord to live as an exile east of Eden. The shed blood of Jesus calls every prodigal son and daughter back home to the father's house where the feast of reconciliation is prepared. Tonight we remember that the sin of the world has been forgiven once and for all and the estrangement of exile has been turned into the reconciliation of homecoming. The gospel within the gospel is the prodigal son parable given to us by Jesus. The prodigal son commits a great sin, leaves the father's house, wastes the father's wealth and riotous living. 
you know the story how he comes home and finds forgiveness and ultimately a feast is prepared. But here's my question. When was the prodigal son forgiven by the father? The prodigal son was never not forgiven. He was always forgiven. The father never had anything but unconditional love for his son. But to experience that forgiveness, the boy has to come home. Well, he has to come to himself, realize what he's done and what he's made of himself, and then come home. Come to himself and then come home. And the father sees him while he's still a great way off. Why? Because the father's looking for him, waiting for him to come home. And the father runs. He runs to the prodigal son. What's not in the parable of the prodigal son is any theory of appeasement, atonement theory. There's no anger in the father. There's no anger to be appeased. The only anger we find in the parable of the prodigal son belongs to the older brother who is offended by how gracious the father is. He can't believe that there isn't some appeasement that has to be required. The father does not run to the servant's quarters and beat a whipping boy to satisfy his wrath because the father has no wrath. The only wrath in the parable of the prodigal son is in the heart of the older brother who is offended by the gratuitous love of the father. And he lingers outside the party in the outer darkness, weeping, gnashing his teeth until he's willing to accept how gracious the father is and he can come home too. And so I invite you to come home. You're already forgiven. The Father has nothing but love toward you. It's always been that way. But it was certainly settled and sealed on Good Friday when the Son expresses the heart of the Father so we could hear him, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And the Father is yes, yes, yes. So I'm telling you, you're forgiven. Come home. Come to the table. Come to the place of reconciliation. That's what Good Friday is about. Would you stand with me? In just a moment, we're going to invite everyone, everyone, everyone to come. You say, do you really mean everyone? I really, I really mean everyone. You say, but you don't know what I've done. It doesn't matter. I know that on Good Friday, the sin of the world, including your sin, was part of that amalgamation of the sin of the world into the hideous singularity that was sinned into the body of Jesus that it might be forgiven in mass. Your sin is forgiven. I mean, if the prodigal son experiences any wrath, you could describe it as wrath when he's in the pig pen, but that's not from the father. That's just the consequence of his own sin. You can call it the wrath of God if you like. But it does not reflect the heart of the father. The father's heart is always, son, come home. Daughter, come home. Come home. Come home. Because it's all forgiven. It's freely forgiven. And there's no, there's no payment. Nobody, nobody gets paid back anything. There's no payment. 
in the parable of the prodigal son. It's just forgiven. And what does the father do about the loss? He bears the loss. It doesn't matter. The father has infinite resources. He says, get him a robe, get him a ring, get him a shoes, prepare the fatted calf. We're going to have a feast. My son was lost and now he's found. He's dead and now he's alive. And now we're going to have a feast of reconciliation. And that's what this table is about. So that's why everyone is invited. You'll come and someone will have bread and they'll say the body of Christ broken for you. It is. Take the bread. It's a gift. It's given to you. It communicates the body of Jesus to you. Someone will have a cup and say, this is the blood of Christ shed for you. It is. Take the bread, dip it in the cup, taste and see that the Lord is good. Join with me now in confessing our Christian faith. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now join with me in confessing our sins and receiving the free forgiveness of the Father. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. And the Father is gracious to all who confess their sins and in humility ask for mercy. I tell you, in the name of Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. And this, this is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love him and for those who want to love him more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little, you who have been here often and you who have not been here long, you who have tried to follow and you who have failed, come. Because it is the Lord who invites you. It is his will that those who want him should meet him here. The body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ shed for you. Amen.